Ed. Welcome back. This is Ronnie and Friends. Hosted by Yo Ronnie. Welcome to Spreaker Network. And of course, this is your friend G Shaw. Coming is Ronnie. And she's going to talk to you about her special guest tonight. This is G.E. Shaw. In one minute, we have Ray to share. So, Ronnie. Yes? Take it away. First off, I'd like to welcome everybody who's listening tonight. I sure do appreciate you taking the time to tune in. Hopefully, we'll have an entertaining and interesting show for you here tonight. Uh, My guest tonight, I'm very fortunate to have my wonderful co-host, G.E. Shaw, agree to talk with me tonight for a while about his poetry and what makes him tick as a poet. So, we're going to start this off um, by asking him, first off, why poetry? Why not novels or short stories or something more traditional? Okay. Trick question here. Let me see if I can give you the short version. When I was a kid, I started writing when I was like, I don't know, as far as I can remember, eight, nine years old. Um, at that point in time, you know, I had the real close family set, me, you know, my sisters, my siblings. And Quite, quite frankly, um, I was writing then, and I wanted to be a journalist, to be quite honest. Oh. Uh, I was good, you know, as good as you can be as you know, a kid at eight years old, you know. But I was, um, <laughs> I was a, a lot of people thought I was a pretty good writer, even at eight. I was very articulate. I was one of those type of guys that only thing that was important to me, literally important to me, was football, sports, and writing. That was it. Not in that particular order, but that was that was it. I didn't care about too much of anything else. I really wasn't into the girl thing. Um, I was more of a basketball nerd, um, a sports nerd. The one little comment to make on that: my my uh, older version of me when I was in high school. And I'll get back to that in a minute. My dad <laughs> had to bribe me, seriously, bribe me to go to my own prom. I wouldn't go. I wouldn't go at all. Wasn't that keen into that. I didn't really care, to be quite honest. 
And plus, I didn't really, um, how would you put it? I really didn't think that much of me at that time. I was just somebody who wanted to come home, hang out with my dad and my mom, and imitate whoever the journalist or the big-time writer was at the time. Yeah. That, that was my whole life. Outside of sports. Excuse me. Um, so, to answer your question about novels, why not novels? Actually, um, like I said, I had a dream of being a journalist. I was also into writing little scary short stories. Mm-hmm. So, but poetry at the time was just... Something I just fell into really at a, at an early age, so it wasn't like wow, this guy just wanted to be a poet. This guy just wanted to be this. Um, it was more or less. I grew up on um, and fell in love with Lang- Langston Hughes. I don't know if you know who he is, but uh, um, I'm not familiar with him. Um. Everybody know Maya Angelou. Yeah. Okay. Maya Angelou, Langston Hughes. Um, I read a little bit of Edgar Allan Poe. Um, back then, I knew about J.R. Tolkien because it was a requirement when I was in elementary, actually in high school, to read Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. So... And plus, there was the typical, as you spoke with your friend last, two weeks ago, there was the typical learning process of Shakespearean sonnets, uh, haku, ballads, limericks. So I grew up in that time and era. So it was more Shakespearean sonnets and ballads. I loved to write. I used to like write little long short, like, love ballads. And all that uh, went on for a while until about 12, 13 years old. At that point, my my world kind of crashed and everything, which I think I talked to you about once or twice, but not to a you know, significant uh, degree. But... Um, I remember it very vividly too. Uh, what happened? I was, we had, we lived in a nice, I was at nice one family, single family dwelling, you know, but back in the Midwest. So back in the Midwest, you had to think that some of the houses that we lived in, that we own, family dwelling, was more brick. See, up here in the Pacific Northwest, you have this wood siding, fake wood, or whatever. So we grew up, our house was made out of completely brick. You know, with some side windows and siding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but to get back to the story, we had a full basement. And that full basement had the two, we had two uh, bedrooms down there. Me and my brother slept down there. My, dark, my, my sister stepped upstairs uh, with my parents. And I remember 
I know it was after midnight. That's all I do remember as far as the time uh, element is concerned. But I remember um, hearing a loud noise, seeing lights flashing, red lights flashing, um, a lot of noise. You can hear it from, you know, right next to my window. So you can hear all the disturbance, you know, out there. And next thing I know, I go upstairs and all I see is my dad on his knees kneeling over my mother. And my mother's name was uh, nickname was Bunchy. I never could figure out why they called her Bunchy. But her nickname was Bunchy. And I could hear my dad saying, Bunchy, Bunchy, wake up, wake up. And the ambulance, you know, the medics coming in the door, et cetera, et cetera. And she's not responding. And basically, that night, even though she did recover momentarily for about another couple of weeks, but I get, after she was released from the hospital, I should say, but I'm just going, I'm just dating this is where I dated it as a kid. And so they take her to the hospital, come to find out that my mother had passed away, or no, had temporarily passed away, and that she had had uh, aneurysm. Um, and aneurysm was in her left side of her brain, the temporary area. But I did not know at the time that both of them burst it was one of those moments that uh, doesn't happen normally in a lifetime you might get one burst but not two at the same time so basically at that moment she had passed and I said two three hours later after you know being in surgery which we thought she had went on uh, the doctors come back out, and yes, excuse me, man. Uh, the doctors came back out and told my dad that my mother was still alive. That they were able to surgically mend the left side of, of her aneurysm that busted, and for some unknown miraculous reason, unknown to us the right side has started to heal by itself. Hmm. So, the right side to them wasn't as significantly important as the left. And so they decided not to attempt to deal with the left, right side. You know, as a little kid, hey, you know, mom's gonna live. I don't have to worry about nothing. Uh, I was 13 years old at that time. The oldest of four. And, you know, uh, she was in the hospital for another, as far as I can remember, another week, week and a half. And um, she came home. And she was home for at least two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember sitting there talking to her one day, and I don't know when that was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, what it was. But I know we were sitting there talking. And see, me and my mother, you have to understand one thing. Me and my mother was really close. My dad was close too, don't get me wrong. But we had some kind of shared spirit. You know, um, we always messed around with each other. We used to box each other, uh, talk, just chat about different things. And one sidebar to that was when we was boxing, <laughs> I used to box with her all the time, play with her and everything. And I remember getting a right hook from my mother. <laughs> and it caught me right smack in the eye. Where, bad enough where I had to put an ice pack on it. had a little bit of a black eye. So, needless to say, when I went to school the next day, I had to explain how I got this black eye. So, you know, as a kid, you, you say, hey, you know, we got into a fight with my brother, and it was more plausible for me to say my brother, you know, clocked me and everything. I didn't want to say that either, but it was more plausible than saying, hey, my mom gave me a nice black eye. <laughs> so everything felt good. And this is where the crazy part gets in, and this is where the evolution, if you want to call it that, of poetry of G.E. Shaw came about. Uh, we went to church, because we always went to church. My dad was really into uh, um, church. My mother was Catholic. My dad was Baptist. But after um, marriage, the strength of my dad, this is how strong he was, he decided to basically go over to, you know, and turn her turn himself into Catholic. Commit to being under the Catholic adult, you know, methodology. Oh, yes. And everything. So that conversion was done. And we was in church, you know, going through our typical churchly procedures and processes and everything. And we was at the tour, basically the end of church. It was like maybe about the last 10 minutes where you have a couple of songs and you start getting up and, you know, talking to your friends, you know, in church and everything. And my mother passed out. You know, we thought, you know, cause like, she had to remember now, she had just gotten out of the hospital. So we felt like, you know, really tiresome for her and everything. So she just probably passed out, come to find out. Um, at that moment, mm, At that moment, my mother passed away. Uh, she wasn't registered, uh, you know, passing until she got to the hospital. And they, you know, timed it at, you know, like they do all the time, cause of death and death at such and such a time. But for all practical purposes, my mother passed away in church. Yes. So I guess if you want to look at it from a biblical or from a Christian standpoint, because my mother was, like I said, very into church. She passed away in a place she loved most, outside of her family. Right. 
you know. Um, of course, you know, somebody 13 years old don't look at it that way. No, uh, no, you wouldn't. Some, you know, uh, I view things a little bit differently. So that's where some of the darkness comes in. But we'll get to that. Um, after my mother passed away and everything, uh, went back to school and all that, um, I got into fights, a lot of fights, some serious fights. And normally I don't, I never was a big time fighter. Uh, it's not one of those things where you say you're the big, I was a big time fighter, I was just a lover. No, that wasn't one of those type of things. I just wasn't really <laughs> into the fighting scene unless I got pushed. Right. Because I was one of those who kept things in. So when you kept nogging and pushing at me and pushing at me, the explosion came out. And you didn't want to be on the other side of that explosion, that pent-up rage. Because I was, when I did fight, I was, I was crazy. I mean, crazy, crazy, blacked out type crazy. Don't remember a lot of things that happened until it's over with crazy. And I remember being in the locker room one day and, a, you know, a friend of mine, I mean, for the most part, you have to realize, I was, a, me and my, most of my friends went to a Catholic elementary school, predominantly black. So, and when we left to go to our high school, and I don't know how it is up, I do know there's private schools up here. Um, I just don't know to the level. I think they are, I think you have four-year high schools, I think. But back in the Midwest, our elementary school ended in the seventh grade. No, eighth grade. Our ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth was all in, that you went to a private high school, was all together. Just give you a backdrop behind that. I was in the locker room one day, you know, just getting ready for PE, and the fact that, like I said, I was in a, we went to a predominantly all-white high school. Except for, you know, the typical minority that you would see integrated in the school. But we was predominantly a, a elementary black school that all went to the same high school. And I was sitting here one day, um, just getting dressed, I, you know, as far as I can remember. And Joe... Mr. Cool Hullings. Um, he, was a, he was a white dude. He was actually pretty cool, really, for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, came up to me. You know, he always wanted to try to harass me, though, to see what made me tick. Came up to me one day, came up to me in there and uh, said, Hey, you know what, Upshaw? Your mother wears combat boots. <laughs> okay. And... That kind of set me off. I remember he, uh, hitting him, throwing a football at him or something of that nature. And I remember telling him, looking at him in a crazy way, saying my mother is dead. And everything in that locker room, everybody around me 
that was in there, everything got silent, very silent. Like the world had just ended silent. And at that moment, I realized that my life has completely changed. And my siblings seen things a little bit differently than I did. Uh, I've seen things more vividly dark, more cutthroat, more what you thought you had as family leaving you. Now, you have to understand one thing. This is coming from a 13-year-old kid. His right. world, the way he see it. So, was that when you started writing? I was already writing at that time. Remember, I was, I was being a journalist and everything. But what oh, happened yeah. was I stopped writing. Oh, you stopped. Okay. I stopped writing. I gave up writing. I gave up the belief in God. I didn't care about too much anything. I gave up. I didn't want to write no more. I didn't want to do anything. I mean, you had to continue writing because you was in high school, you know, in school, going through school. Right. So you had to do the basic whatever. So I did the basic whatever. But as far as the love, the, the care, all that I wanted to do was just get the hell out of school. That's it. I didn't like high school at that point no more. I didn't like anything. I got into fights, like I said. I did some stupid crap that I really forgive myself. Uh, I, I can't forgive myself for because I did some stupid crap. You know, but... Fast forward this to present time. When did I really get into writing? Well, Miss Ronnie. Yes. I didn't really get back into writing until I was 49, 50. Really? 45, maybe. Now, you have to understand. Throughout the course of my life into adulthood, I had to write depending on the, you know, based on the certain jobs I I maintained at the time. And so a lot of it, I had to write. It was required writing because I was like in corporate security. Like I said, was, you know, the law enforcement part, I was in corporate security. At one point, I did some bill enforcement uh, to a lot of people out there to buy me honey type of thing. Okay. I, I was in the dad. Um, I spent eight, nine years as a paralegal. So my whole, basically, my whole landscape was in the legalities of law. Well, it was, let me get this right here. 2002, I lost my job the first time around and it was over a tragedy yes um all this is going to have an ending i promise you and it went you have more of an understanding because you have read some of my stuff so you understand where some of the darkness and some of the joy came from so in 2002 i lost my job I got hired on, and I used to work for a management company. I was their head of security for all the 
property that they own in Tacoma. And they own about, mm, uh, we took care of at least six of them. They're all within a two or three, four mile radius. Well, one night, I was the only person on duty that night. Uh, everybody else, I gave up, gave the day off. It was Friday night. It was kind of quiet, so I figured, hey, I can, I can deal with it. I was on, it's a routine check down at some of the other um, properties that we own. When I came back to my main property, where I basically reside at, um, I came across a 911 call. And it just so happened that my partner, a good friend of mine, Brandon, had just came back onto the property at that time. Thank goodness. And I responded, and he followed me. He didn't know what was going on. He just saw me heading um, toward an apartment, so he was going to come over there and you know, hang out. And when he found out what happened, we had walked into an apartment that was uh, open. And just give you a little quick backdrop to it. There's a little girl in there that used to be friends with my two uh, daughters. Um you know Marie and my baby daughter, Raven. Uh-huh. They used to hang out, you know, and play. Sometimes the girl would come over to my house and play around. She was a little fireball. But she was still a good little kid. You know, for the most part. For all kids at that age. She was like, you know, the terrible 18, 11-year-old teenagers going into teenagehood. Well, kind of, uh, we came into that room in that house. Doors open. There was some blood in the living room. That's not good. Um, as we proceeded into the um, into the house, into the apartment, followed all the way back to the back. One of the doors was had a lot, of, you know, some blood trickling in there. Didn't know what was gonna happen. Well, I took my uh, gun out. My partner had his. Um, Real life, serious stuff here. Not no TV action. Got into it, opened the door up, went in, found the young girl on the floor, base with no clothes on, and a couple multiple wounds to her abdomen, and I think there was one to her uh, throat, too, and, and it was just uh, surreal. I mean, yeah. It was like watching some Alfred Hitchcock movie in slow-mo. Huh. Didn't know. It just didn't seem real. You know, I don't know. I don't know if you ever been in a situation like that where it just seemed like everything around you, the environment, the time, it just basically became... Slow mo, like it's just really real type of, especially when and, I, and you have to realize one thing. I grew up around death, around people getting killed every day, but not to see a young girl laying there innocently, and so you know I checked her pulse and everything, and 
I thought she was still alive. I felt a little slight heartbeat, or at least a pulse. But by the time the medics came in, they told me she had passed. And I kept trying to tell them, no, she's still alive. And my partner and one of the officers had to pull me out of there. And um, I went to go see a shrink. <laughs> Uh, a few days later, after being me and my team, and this is one of my first tastes, and I don't even know why I went back to corporate management, I really don't, but one of my very first reality t tastes of what really is expendable, when yeah. people start covering their behinds and right. you become more expendable real quick. Um, we got roasted in the news. It was a, it, it made the news. I had to even go to court and testify. It was, yeah, it was, uh, 2001, 2002. Um, happened on Hosmer. On 96. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I can't remember now. I think, I can't remember the apartment now. They done changed so many times over the years. But, yes, they have. I've lived on Hosmer a couple of times. I was down at Charlton Lake for a while. I think that's Hosmer. That's I think that's department. the other end of Hosmer. That's the department. Well, that Lake. figures, because that place was really, really bad. <laughs> In fact, one night when my son was very young and we were living there, we all had to go into the bathroom and get into the bathtub because there was a shooter running through the, the big center space between the buildings and we we got calls from the management telling us to go into our bathrooms, get into our bathtubs, because they figured that was the safest place for us all. Yes. So, yeah, Charlton Lakes was a real hellhole. <laughs> but we're going to take a quick break here for a couple of seconds so we can pay some bills, and we will be back in a couple of minutes. Okay. Shaw, and you are listening to Ronnie Deshay and Friends. We'll be back after this promo. Hello, this is G.E. Shaw once again. If you've been thinking about learning how to get into a new career, dealing with podcasting, online radio, streaming radio, all the different names out there, you ought to try out my friends at Anchor. That's www.anchor.fm. They, they give you the best of everything for podcasting, especially people who just started out. Unlimited free hosting, which means you don't pay for it. One-click distribution. And this one-click distribution gets you to all the major players out there. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, every platform out there. Anchor does all the work. Monetization for podcasts, something new that Anchor has just bought on. If you want your listeners out there listening to you, and they love listening to you, have them make a donation. That's Anchor. And you can record from everywhere. Anchor. www.anchor.fm Check it out. You won't forget it. This is G.E. Shaw. Mix our radio. See you later. Two tipsies. Breakout music. It's Lagos Evil Boy. Danny, Ogan, 
Flacken wie Feuer, Flacken wie Feuer. Hold up, can I get a minute? I wanna talk something that I really mean. Can I be your gentleman? Make I be your gentleman? Hold up, can I get a minute? I wanna talk something that I really mean. Can I be your gentleman? Make I be your gentleman? Oh my, oh my. This is G.E. Shaw, and this is the Ronnie, the Shay, and Friends show. And we'll let Ronnie take over. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Okay, so now we know about some of the, the really terrible things that happened to you when you were young, and how it kind of affected your life and pushed you away from writing, but... At some point, you said when you were about 49, you started writing again. I started so, writing in college. 
in college. Okay. Um, what happened was, when you fast forward to 2009, uh, in between that point in time, I was still not writing that much. I mean, I wrote. But when I looked at writing at that time, I thought, hey, it's just writing. Anybody can write. It's no big deal. You just take a pen, you put it on some paper, and you just write. No big deal. I don't know what all the fuss is about. <laughs> you know? And it wasn't until I got to college and another tragedy hit. <laughs> um, I was in corporate security. I was corporate management. I had some heart issues and things of that nature. Pass forward that and bypass that. But what happened was I was there for five and a half years. And I was climbing the corporate ladder. I had a house, car. My daughter was... They, whatever they needed, I took care of, whatever. And then one day I got really sick. And when I came back to work... I'm just uh, fast-forwarding this. Uh, came back to work. I got another understanding what corporate America was. Um, I went to the office. And I had an email that told me my services were no longer needed. Ah, one of those. And that was all I heard from my employer. And the madness and the browbeating I got from my good friend who told me for quite some time, and he did, and I love him dearly, his name is Andrea Barnes. He said, man, those people don't like you. They don't want you there. You don't understand that. I see it. See, you are the kid or the guy that they worst feared. Because you're not corporate. Said, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you're not. But you're not corporate material. You are a guy from the streets. Uh, but they don't know how to deal with you because you're smart. They never met someone that book smart, street smart, and can write. They, they don't see that coming. So when it came, it bit them several times. You see, you understand one thing. My partner was ex-military, so he had the, you know, the clean cut, the corporate look, etc. So whenever they talked to somebody, they talked to my partner, thinking that he was the brains. Uh -huh. So it all screwed up. So they let me go. I lost my house, you know, lost my insurance. Didn't have no insurance. I didn't have nothing. And I. Try to, you know, attempt to understand the, the virtue of suicide several times. Um, my partners came to me. And my brother came to me and said, you need to go back to school. Because if you're as smart as we think you are, that's where you need to be at. So, you want to know where I learned how to write? Well, got myself back into writing. Her name, her two names was Miss Lanier, a older lady, legal technician, very smart. She was in her early sixties and her other and the other person was Dr. Shepherd. We didn't get along a lot at times, but she was good for my soul. Um the reason I say that is remember I told you how I thought anybody could write? Mm -hmm. 
So <laughs> I came with that uh, with that methodology that anybody could write. So uh, I'm in my first paper I wrote, <laughs> and I'm thinking, hey, this is gonna be no B. This is a, hey, no problem. A little three-page little thesis and everything, eh, no problem. So I got it all. I'm a very detailed person. I had to go back and look at my writing. I want to make sure I even read it at all. I gave it to him. You know, I was, you know, I was like 49, 50 at that time. <laughs> Actually, 50, to be quite honest. And the very next day when we got our papers back, I never seen so much blood on my paper. All over what? my paper. And for people who don't understand what I mean by blood, it's the red markings that you get from your teacher, from your professor telling you how bad this was. Little lines going through things and little, you know, <laughs> comments. And that kind of shot me down. To a point I said, well, okay, I don't think I'm going to go back to school. This is not for me. And I remember going to my professor telling her that before I, you know, decided to Resign. Now, quite resign. Now, you understand one thing. I was only in school for one week in college. And I said, oh, hell no. This is not for me. I'm old. Can't do this now. Uh, well, Professor Lanier came to me, <laughs> and she told me, boy, do you know why I gave you all that red? Yeah, I can't write. That's obvious. She said, I knock you upside your head. I'm like, okay. She said, if I wanted you to regurgitate every single thing I spoke in class, I would just told you, repeat everything I said in class. I went to Evergreen State College. I don't know how well you know that. Evergreen State College is a very, very liberal college. They... What the most best thing I can say about them is they teach you how to think for yourself. How to get what they taught you and learn how to go with it and express yourself. So she told me, why did you write this when I told you give me your um, understanding of what we were talking about in the notes? And you wrote everything I said. That's what you wanted me to do. No, I didn't. I wanted you to give me your opinion. So the next day, I came back with a five-page paper that only required three. And I was supposed to get read all over my paper again. Um, it didn't happen. I was kind of shocked. I actually had a 96%. Oh, awesome. Now... 96% trans, uh, they don't give a little grade, so it transferred into exemplary work beyond expectation. And I'm like, whoa. And then from that point on, she told me, whenever I call on you, you're going to respond. I'm like, uh, no, I'm not. Uh, yes, you are. Uh, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. And to make that clear, she had a chair set aside for me 
by her. I felt like a little kindergarten sitting by my teacher. And from that point on, I started learning how to write what I see, uh, write what I feel. Things I have learned when I was young, I didn't, I, I forgot about, I took for granted. See, sometimes as a writer, you don't know how you how much you're blessed. You really don't. I didn't. Because certain things you take for granted. I took writing for granted. I figured, like I said, anybody could write. And what you write. How to believe in what you write. And everything. So... You want to know how I became the writer I am now? Those two young ladies showed me the way to write. Well, reawoken what I did when I was younger. So, one of the first things I did when I, um, and this was even when I was still in college, I started writing. I wrote my first book when I was in college. Didn't know what the hell I was doing as far as the public. What was your first book? Pardon me? What was your first book? Uh, the first book was Poetry of the Soul. Um, okay. And what you don't understand by Poetry of the Soul, it was only meant to be one book. It turned into five. It turned into a series. A lot of books do that. I tell you, there's a lot of people I know that write series that started out, and this, including myself, start out with one book, and it's only supposed to be one book, and next thing you know, you're working on book three or four. Yeah, see, Poetry of the Soul was basically designed to get me through some of the terrifying, troubling years when I was in college in Evergreen State because I lost five of the closest people to me at that time. I lost three. I lost my cousin, a very close uh, c uh, cousin of mine. I lost my two nephews, a good friend, and to top it off, um, in February of 2009, I found out that my father had passed away. Hmm. I lost five people in a span of eight weeks. Wow. I shut down again. My professor told me I need to take some time and figure out what's going on with me. Because you have a lot of undam you have a lot of damage that's going on in that head of yours. And I told her no I didn't. Yeah, I did. So entered my writing. I wrote See you don't understand one thing. I didn't have a counselor. I couldn't deal with all this. Remember I lost all my money. I lost my job. Didn't have nothing. Didn't even have insurance. I depended on my educational prowess to stay in school to take care of my family. Scholarships and loans. That's how I lived. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and for me to deal with some of the pain, a lot of the pain I was going through, even from back then. See, the thing is, I didn't realize is when I lost everything, I felt a lot of other things. Uh, a lot of mental issues that was hidden away when I put myself into work and everything else. That's for a different time. But I started writing. And Portrait of the Soul was a, I think, 145-page book that I wrote all in the course of two quarters of my last two quarters of my first year in college at Evergreen. Oh, okay. Uh, one of most vivid ones that I wrote was a basketball story, a ballad. And it was written from a time when I thought I gotten over it. And I didn't. It was I lost my mother when I was 13 years old. Right. It was written on the uh, premise of somebody who lost his only soulmate, his only... Um, identity and like I said I love my dad and everything but my mother was my identity we did everything together and I did not live up to a promise I had told her because the night before well two nights before she passed away I didn't tell nobody this and I'm telling this to everybody on the on the network worldwide great we sat down and had talked one day about three days before she passed away and she told me, don't forget my dreams. Take care of your family. Take care of your dad and your brothers. You know, at 13, I just felt like it was my mother just talking, you know. Like she always does, you know, wisdom. Well, she knew then, to a certain degree, that something was wrong, that she wasn't going to be around. So she was giving me a warning. Well, the basketball dream was based on that. Letting her know that I did fall, but I came back to relive a dream for her, for me, and to set things right. That what that that's what that was based on. And then that makes sense. Pardon me? Oh I just said that makes sense. That you would write something like that. Then came the darkness. <laughs> There's a, um, um, basically, I call it a monologue, a shortened version of a monologue. It's about five and a half pages long. It's called Art Therapy, A Mirror Reflection. Art Therapy was basically written during a time when I felt the, the darkest I felt that the only way out for me would be maybe a knife. I remember cutting myself a couple of times across my chest and didn't even, you know how you don't realize what you did until you look in the mirror and you say, and the first thing that comes to your mind was, what the hell, what the, you know, freak did I do? And having my daughter look at me and see what happened. That kind of took me to another level. 
So our therapy was based on what do we see as a reflection of ourselves in a mirror. When everything's stripped away and all you see is yourself, your spirit, and your identity. Do you, can you, and will you recognize who you really are? So our therapy was based on that, based on the, the time when I was a corporate world, the time I lost that little girl that I blame for losing, I blame myself for, the time when I was younger and I thought of myself as not equal to anybody, the time that I still go through now, the demons, the darkness, the things I see, the things I don't want to talk about, the things that goes on all the time in my head. Art therapy is my solution to my own therapy. And it was one of the ways I was able to get through things until I was able to get myself back some medical. That's how I live. I live through my writing. Um, basically, as what Forrest had said once before, I, I think it's a therapy. It was some type, it was a therapeutic way for me to survive. It was a therapeutic way for me to go into myself and deal with what I had to deal with. I, I, didn't, I didn't quite hear that. Oh, I just said it makes sense to do that. And I think a lot of writers do that. And the other thing about me is now I write and I write with a vision. I don't, I'm not your typical poet, as people say. I mean, I do write, I do write some ballads. I have written some Shakespearean lyrics. I have done some Shakespearean, Shakespearean sonic. I'm a child of that era. But I'm also somebody who grew up under the privileged eye of certain people I like to listen to who's, um, write spoken word, free verse, uh, things of that nature. So I do a little bit of everything. I write a little bit of everything. But what I write about is what I see. See, most some poets, they already have in their head a certain logical sequence of what they want to write about. You know, it's already outlined, prepared, and ready to go. Mm -hmm. One of the things about me and why it takes me so long at times is because I'm a emotional writer. I write about what I feel, what I see, what I hate, what I love. I write about things that are I look at as being cruel to the world. I write about social issues. I write about Racism, prejudice, ageism. I write about anything. Uh, there's a poem in there that I wrote about. It's called Shadow Walkers. Shadow Walkers happens to be written during a time I was catching a bus. I was waiting for a, a bus at a transit center. You want to know what made me write? Why I got the premise of that? You ever sit... You ever be out walking around and you just happen to take a glaze at the ground and you see all these different types of shadows of people 
how they walk, to how the shadows distort or determine your physical outlook from a shadow on the ground. Right. Well, Shadow Walker was based on that premise. I happened to just be sitting there one day, just waiting on the bus, and happened to see four or five people walking through there, you know, different shapes and sizes on the shadows, and they were all different, you know, nationality, races, minority, good friends. Some, some of them were very physically fit, but when you look at the shadow, they looked like they were little skinny string beans. Huh. And some of the ones who were a little bit heavier looked like they were very, very muscular. <laughs> so, basically, Shadow Walker was written based on the tr- premise that when you look into the heart of somebody, or when you look into the deep into the shadows of the abyss, we're all created for the same reason. We all created to live a life, to be happy, to be unified, and to just enjoy life as a collaboration of life. That's why I wrote that. Okay. Uh, there's other stuff in there I wrote about. It's called, and I think you might like. I think you might love this one. And Forrest might have liked it too. It's called the poet. Why do I write poetry? And it's based on the fact that when I was writing, I was just sitting at home one day writing, and somebody and I was thinking about Langston Hughes, Maya Angelou, and all that. And I wrote this based on one uh, fact that when you think about artists, the first thing that comes to your mind is artists. A person on a canvas. A person drawing a landscape. A horizon. True enough, writers are artists too. But when I think about artists, the first thing I think about is my daughter and her gift for painting and things of that nature. So, uh, when I wrote um, that particular piece, it was centered around my canvas. My canvas is my paper. My canvas is my pen, my pencil, my felt pen, my image of what I want to write. I'm talking about crossing my eyes, dotting my T's, making everything smooth, writing like a smooth canvas, a picture, a horizon. I wrote that one. I also wrote one on politics. Uh, One of the ones that I speak about a lot (laughs) is the one I always talk about. The implosion from within. Well, I actually, believe it or not, Ronnie, wrote a piece back in 2009 predicated on things that could happen in the future. And I spoke about a country imploding from within. And I went back and looked at that poem. I said, damn, I'm good. (laughs) <laughs> I said, you know, so you ever, you ever uh, get a certain art or a piece of work and you look at it and you say, damn, I wrote that? Damn, yes, I'm, exactly. I'm really good. You know, that, that moment that 
you see something and you read it and you realize that was pretty damn awesome. Have you ever felt that way? Oh, yes. Yes. So There was one piece I wrote in particular that I feel that way about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I read that and I said, man, I'm pretty damn awesome. Let me pat myself on the shoulder for that because that's a pretty damn good. And then I went back to the darkness. I went back to the darkness. I wrote a piece called Everybody is With Me. And Everybody's With Me is about a point in time where we talk about, we understand mental health, mental illness. We talk about, we know how people are and how it impacts us. And unless you lived it or are still living it or dealing with it every day, you really don't know. You can't justify something you really don't know. Or you don't want to know. And it talks about me. And it talks about my friends. Yes. I'm not crazy folks. I'm not talking back to them. Okay. <laughs> but I talk about the interference. The multitude of voices I hear. And at the end. What I write about in the conclusion of it was. We're all here. Together. With me. Oh, excellent. Um, so, and it's a whole, it's a, it's basically a whole pilgrimage of, that I write about in that time gap. I talk about I, all the interference I have. I talk about everything I, I hear. I Basically, it's my way of telling people, look, you're not alone. I understand where you're coming from. I understand what it takes to fight every day to get up. And that even though society doesn't understand who you are or what you're about, because we don't have the outward labels on us that we see from like disabilities that are openly disabled that you see or for somebody who might be mentally scarred and you see it, that we're here. We're people. We understand, you know, you have to understand who we are to go further to understand what we can do. That a lot of us out there are special if given that opportunity and that chance. That's what I talk about. I agree. And on that note, hon, I think we need to, to close this down. Our time is up. Um, but I would like to have you back on a future show, if you don't mind. No so problem. So we can move on from there and maybe get more into your writing and the types of things that you do right and talk about your books themselves because I'm sure people want to know the titles of the books and where they can find them well I can so, tell you that uh, if you don't mind uh, uh-huh. por- uh, Poetry of the Soul like I said turned out to be just a one book but it turned into a five book series with the premise and a platform called Poetry of the Soul there's Poetry of the Soul there's Poetry of the Soul Revelations I think you would love that one. We can talk about that at a future time. There's Poetry of the Soul Unveiled. And then there's Poetry of the Soul, the Anniversary Edition. With all three books I've written, plus some extra ones, into that Anniversary Edition. And the one I'm working on, and then there's Poetry of the Soul Prophecy. Oh, 
prophecy was written during a time and it doesn't really explain everything but remember uh, when I think it was 2011 when everybody was talking about the world coming to the end because of the Maya calendar and everything else right. I wrote about that because of all the stuff my daughter was talking about all their fears and everything so it was my version of what I consider a prophetical type vision would be of the world Oh, and, well, that sounds interesting. Um, um, yeah, I would love to get into that on a future show. Um, I, I just think there's so much more that we could look at where you're concerned and where your poetry comes from. And you know I love your work, and I just think that there's so much emotion and so much depth in it. But um, I, I want to thank you so much for being willing to come on tonight. And again, I want to thank everybody who's out there listening. Please uh, message us here at the show, send an email, um, contact us on Facebook. Let us know what you think, because we'd sure love to hear from you. And on that note, I'm going to turn this back over to Greg. I think you have some music or something you want to play. And I'll just shut up for a while. Yeah, that's we'll okay. Be back in the first of the month, the first and the third Thursdays are my nights. So I will be back with this show the 1st of February, and I'm hoping at this point that my guest will be Robin Linzer, who is a very talented author of young adult uh, novels. So hopefully she'll be here with us at the next show on the first Thursday of February. And of course, I will be here right along with her, but in the background, like I always am. <laughs> This is G.E. Shaw, and what you have just heard was Ronnie Deshay and Friends. And her special guest, of course, was me. But <laughs> until then, we'll be back, like she said, the first Thursday in February. This is Ronnie Deshay saying goodnight. Good night. And this is G.E. Shaw. And this is The Best by Candy Rose. And I'll be back in a few minutes to close up the show.
to smash me down My love has taken its toll Around its cousin to get old I got nothing left in to get old And I can't recall the last time I put a smile on your face 